The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
In beauty, we begin this morning. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be together. I hope you are all well, well and warm on this chilly day, at least in the Bay Area when we pray for rain. We begin this Sunday, which is the Sunday of Earth Week, naming first and foremost that we stand, those who are within close catchment of where I stand on Ohlone lands, in humility, in recognition, and increasingly holding ourselves accountable to what it means to say and know and own that. And so we start with gratitude and humility for the place in which we stand and accountable to its history. And starting in this place of gratitude, let me extend the circle of gratitude to those folks who are making worship possible today. To those you can't see, but who I can see, Shuli Ong and Eric Shackelford on our cameras, Jonathan Silk making our sound rich and robust, those who are even outside the building right now, Joe Chapeau, who's on the chat to answer your questions. Roberto Delau, who's here on site, helping us keep us safe and make the building run while we're here. Those like Alex Dar and Les James and Tom Brookshire, who host our coffee hour after service. And those with me leading worship. Mark Sumner and Michelle, I'm sorry, Brielle Marina Nielsen who are going to be leading us in song and music. Sam King, who is here as my worship associate and the folks who brought us the beauty that started the worship this morning. To Alan Biggs on marimba and to Tommy Kessiker, who is on vibraphone. It's a treat to have you with us and again. And so we enter in a space made beautiful by the flowers brought to us by Judy Payne. Everyone who makes this moment possible, we begin the service this week. A complicated week, which I think needs to be named as we let go or name what we bring with us. A week in which the verdict in the in the heartbreaking case of George Floyd was brought forward. A relief, I think, the justice of it, but followed almost immediately by the sadness of all of the other losses that seemed to be drawn like magnetic metal filings to the reality of what is America and the ongoing work of dismantling white supremacy and the brutality visited upon black bodies, particularly by police. For so many others of us, getting our vaccines and beginning to feel the strength of immunity, the news from abroad was hard. Those of us who consider ourselves part of the global family of humanity and those with particular connections to places like India have been thinking with heavy hearts of those who are suffering and afraid, cremation pyres burning all night long, 24 hours a day to keep up with the losses. We bring that into this space. 
And this Earth Day too, which hits with a clear reminder of the realities of climate change for those of us here in the Bay Area, with an, the rolling out already of water rationing and the specter of fires in the seasons ahead. And that's only some of what we walk into this hour having to hold. So many of our weeks feel like heavy burdens we bring with us, along with all the joys of life. And so this need to step back, breathe, reflect, draw some meaning and order and resolute determination out of our time together before we strengthened, I hope, and knit back together, step back into the world to serve. So welcome. It's good to be together. We light our candle this morning as we have every Sunday since the beginning of the pandemic as a symbolic way to bring all of you into this space, your spirits, until we are together in body. And we begin with song. We're beginning with our hymn number 203. We're only going to sing verses 1 through 4. The words and music are in your order of service. Let's sing together.
Invite us now to light our chalice. The words are printed in your order of service. I was on a meeting this week when everybody in the meeting had their own chalice or candle ready. So if you have yours ready, please light yours at home as we say these words together. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. If this is your first time watching, thank you for joining us. Our order of service, which is available in the description of this video, is emailed to everybody who receives our newsletter, which you can get by signing up through a link to our connection form that is in the order of service as well as the video description. The order of service also lists upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect including our Zoom coffee hour, which takes place after the service. Please join in anything that interests you. I want to call your attention especially to the class on nurturing your creativity. This class is led by Reverend Allison Jacks and Meg McGuire, our ministerial intern, and it meets on the first three Sundays in May. The registration deadline for that class is today, so please check it out in your order of service and sign up soon if you're interested. Also, this Tuesday at 7 p.m. is our Journey to Wholeness Racial Equity Task Force meeting. Please email info at uusf.org if you would like to attend. And there's still time to read Wild Iris, a poetry book by Louise Gluck for this week's Minister's Book Group. You can see the details and register in your order of service. I believe that that's all I wanted to call your attention to. Now please join us in singing hymn number 74, on the dusty earth drum. The words are in your order of service and we'll be singing it as a two-part round. Yeah. 
us to turn in our order of worship to the words of our covenant, the promises that we make to each other, and then say them together and sing together our doxology. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human-caused catastrophes, we ring our gong today in honor of four such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first, as we have since July of 2019, for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps for the mounting trauma, 
to children separated from their families, for all people held without charges in less than transparent or humane circumstances in this repeat of some of the most shameful chapters in our nation's and our world's history of xenophobia, racism, and greed. We ring the gong seven times for this week of days in which human dignity has been dismissed and our responsibility for that as citizens of this country rings out clear. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week to COVID-19. This last week, 107,000 people died of COVID-19 globally, 6,000 in the United States alone. We hold in our hearts all of these losses. All who have lost people they loved dearly. All who are still vulnerable to the disease. We hold in our hearts those nations where medical care is taxed to the brink of its abilities and with devastating consequences and all who await the fair global distribution of vaccines that to be fair will require a significant commitment by the wealthy nations of the world, ourselves among them. We ring our gong once in memory of George Floyd who died a year ago. And though the person who ended his life was found guilty last week, no court of law can bring back his life or the lives of the 1,020 other people killed by police in 2020. And finally, on this Earth Day Sunday, we ring our gong once for our planet to remind us that we are part of an interdependent web of existence and that every action we take and every action we don't take casts ripples throughout the whole system. So much to remember and to hold. May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can.
I'd like to invite us into a time of meditation, centering, prayer. And begin by calling out to the spirit of life. However, we know and understand that phrase, spirit that breathes, breath, that ancient root word of the word spirit. Spirit that breathes through stomata of leaves in trees and flowers. That breathes in the raspy snores of the dog at the edge of the bed. There in the foggy air that billows out in a cloud from the mare's nuzzle after a run in the fields. Spirit that breathes in us. Our own breath so easily in training with others. Comforting like the rise and the fall of breath that quiets the child back to sleep when they are pressed head against our chest. Spirit of life, force so powerful and so fragile too, delicate and fierce force that moves in us in all. Help us this day to remember our connection to you, that we are part of the larger reality you flow through, stitched through our breath and our dependence on this planet to one another, to all of life, woven into one even larger garment of destiny than the preacher was naming long ago, the largest network of mutuality we can imagine. One that holds topsoil and rivers in its grasp too and asks sacrifice to and willingness to endure the work of changing minds and hearts also. That holds us also in sacred obligation to something larger than ourselves and obligation to all of life. In your spirit, carved out of this time, let us lean into and release into a moment of shared silence. Using our breath as the way into and companion through this moment.
of release into quiet together. I invite us into shared silence. Bound by breath, stitched into shared life, may we be regrounded in the deepest truth of life, called to serve it as if it were our own, making it so. Amen.
reading for this morning is the poem Daisies by Louise Gluck from her book, The Wild Iris. Go ahead, say what you're thinking. The garden is not the real world. Machines are the real world. Say frankly what any fool could read in your face. It makes sense to avoid us, to resist nostalgia. It is not modern enough. The sound the wind makes, stirring a meadow of daisies. The mind cannot shine following it. And the mind wants to shine plainly as machines shine, and not grow deep as, for example, roots. It is very touching all the same to see you cautiously approaching the meadow's border in early morning when no one could possibly be watching you. The longer you stand at the edge, the more nervous you seem. No one wants to hear impressions of the natural world. You'll be laughed at again. Scorn will be piled on you. As for what you're actually hearing this morning, think twice before you tell anyone what was said in this field and by whom.
I feel like if you were all here, we'd erupt in applause and hands waving. <laughs> it's been so extraordinary. Makes me think, I think it's an Annie Dillard quote who has a line about so that creation, about apprehending the beauty of the world, so that creation need not play to an empty house. At the beginning of the pandemic, <clears throat> when the most restrictive spell of the shutdown was lifted, <clears throat> my husband started doing the one thing he was allowed to do to break free of the jail of our apartment. The one thing that many of us did, of course, he started to take walks, long walks. Taking long walks has actually been a part of his life in spells once, in fact, around the time he turned 40, he was in one of those periods. So for his 40th birthday, he invited friends to walk with him from one tip of Broadway in Manhattan to the other tip, an all-day pilgrimage in the urban jungle. This time on these walks, he started noticing, as so many of us did, the natural world that was always planted all around us in the city in its streets, in its parks, and he started photographing it with his phone. And then he started sending those photos <clears throat> up to five, a bouquet, he called it, a small bouquet every day, to his mother and then also to mine and then to a beloved aunt, all of whom we were very grateful, were being super careful, sequestered at home. And so it was this little act of connection and beauty brought to the safety of their phones and their email accounts. And Rohit even started looking up the flowers and sending them all the names, the common one, the Latin one, careful never to repeat a flower, he said, unless it was a particularly extraordinary virgin of one. That never-repeat rule, he thought, would mean that his commitment to them would end in a couple of weeks, but it didn't. The flowers, and therefore the photos, stretched on for a month, and then two, ultimately 84 days in total. He is sure he was finding all these new species of flowers. The challenge got harder as time went on, but so too did the amazement. And the discovery of what flowers could look like, how they could be present in a thicket of spines, or one so tiny you had to lean in to make sure it was, in fact, a flower on your knees, phone zoomed in as closely as it could. Blue and orange and fuchsia and bright yellow, every color of the rainbow, sometimes wildly mixed together like an artist's palette, rinsing under the faucet, all the colors running together. These walks, this challenge, started to bridge something else too, I think, as we talked about it, a more adoring connection to the place, the place we had chosen to call home. Like it deepened that connection. In a way I don't think either of us would have anticipated. Writer and Bay Area resident Anne Lamott 
has her advice for writers start like the photographer of flowers I just described to invite people to look up close and specifically bird by bird her book on writing is entitled much like the writer Annie Dillard's book of essays and encounters with nature teaching a stone to talk Lamott's advice and Dillard's essay are about choosing to write what you see and know from up close, intimately. Lamott learned some of this advice from her father, who was also a writer and a teacher of writing. She says, quote, he could go any place he wanted with a sense of purpose, my father. One of the gifts of being a writer is that it gives you an excuse to do things, to go places, and to explore. Another is that writing motivates you to look closely at life. Writing taught my father to pay attention. And so he teaches her, and she teaches those she instructs to pay attention to see bird by bird, flower by flower up close. Scott Stillman, a lover of the outdoors and a writer, a lover especially of the wilder places, wrote a book about some of his wildest long hikes. It's titled Wilderness, the Gateway to the Soul. Of his time outdoors, Stillman writes, I'm not here to tame or conquer, I'm here to connect. And connect he does because there's no other distraction in the places where he goes, these empty landscapes that are beyond cell phone towers and where he's hiking alone, and so he begins to see with greater attention all of the life and landscape that is around him. One morning while hiking in Colorado, Stillman describes waking in his tent, pitched the night before, as I recall, at the edge of a ravine. And he wakes to see where he finds himself, to really see it in the sun of the morning. He writes, a low, a low fog blankets the morning in purple hue. Beyond this island and sky where I've pitched my camp over the ledge, one world disappears and another begins. I crawl on my hands and knees and stomach to get a closer look. When I peer over, I freeze at a glimpse of inescapable beauty. Cow Creek Canyon plummets 4,000 feet straight down to the canyon floor. This is earth in its most raw state of natural beauty, perfection in every detail, terrain that can never be tamed nor developed, too wild, too unreachable, too sacred. Any improvement here? would be devastation. How long, he writes later in the chapter, how long can I tolerate such beauty, 
such bliss before it swallows me whole. Of course, the idea of any land as wild and uncultivated is a myth in North America. As David Truer, author of Heartbreak at Wounded Knee, Native American, and author also of a recent article in the Atlantic Magazine about national parks and an appeal that they be returned to the native peoples. As he points out, when John Muir was describing what he and others thought of as a virginal landscape, North America had not been a wilderness for 15,000 years. The stunning valleys and vistas of Yellowstone and Yosemite and every other corner that took away European colonizers and visitors' breath was cultivated beauty, at least in part. But the landscapes, often the ones long ago identified as sacred understandably, did and do still take the breath away, don't they, of those of us who have the chance to behold them? Sacred is something we feel in our bones, isn't it? In certain places, so much more obviously so. Shaken out of who we knew ourselves to be, Stillman would say of such moments, reminded of who we are, really are. Like that person in the Louise Gluck poem that we read this morning, that person who is in a world of industry and machines, halting by the meadow, by the edge, in, in full view of all those daisies, lured back in that moment you can almost feel in the poem into this fundamental relationship that they are in danger of forgetting. But, but the wilderness, Nature, always wildly insistent on connection. And thank God. And it doesn't just happen in grand, large places, right? Like Yosemite, looking up at El Capitan. Though Thomas Star King, too, would be moved by that place enough to join in the efforts to make it into a national park. A complicated choice, we now realize, but better than the options that might have been considered then. That sense of awe and wild, that invitation into connection that draws us back into relationship, fundamental relationship with larger life. It doesn't just happen only in big, magnificent scenes or the expanse of a meadow. This week, I went to the optometrist. My doctor is a competent, gracious, professional, born and raised in a city, this city. And my eyes have gotten noticeably worse during COVID, so it was time to get my vision checked. All that staring at screens up close, well, it had had the depressing effect that I had noticed and guessed, which is that it has permanently messed with my eyes. Please remember the 20-20-20 rule. Every 20 minutes, find a point 20 or more feet away and look at it for 20 seconds. Yeah, well, the bad news was delivered. I got my new prescription for distance glasses. 
And I was about to leave when I realized he hadn't tested me for glaucoma, and why not make sure everything is in order that should be in order? The blow test where they puff air into your eyes, it's dangerous these days, all related to the virus, of course. But he asked, since I asked, if I wouldn't mind trying some new equipment he had just acquired as a substitute for that test. He would take a picture inside my eye. So I agreed, and we went into a room, and I pressed my face against the machine and stared into a light, and 30 seconds later, this, this picture appeared on a screen. There it was, in all its glory, a peach-colored landscape of the inside of my eye, this universe that's normally hidden, that's crisscrossed delicately by in any number of capillaries that weave through the space, bringing it blood and keeping it alive. All of it doing all this work, I said, that's going on all the time, and I never bother to say thank you, he laughed. And then he leaned to look in with me at the picture. There, he said, his voice suddenly getting a little quieter. There, do you see that? That little light-colored circle? That's the optic nerve. It's like the belly button to the brain. Everything goes through there. Diane Ackerman, in her Natural History of the Senses, she writes, with awe, the realization that 70% of the sense receptors in our bodies cluster in the eyes. Did you know that half of the surface of our cortex in our brain is processing visual information? The doctor and I, we both stared at this powerful reality, delicate, adjusting to pandemics and age, conditioning our very sense of the world and understanding of it those of us with sight. It is a wonder, he said. The eye is a wonder. And then, after a heartbeat, my competent doctor turned and led me out of the room and we left it and the image behind. But that moment stuck with me felt like in that moment I had met this person who wasn't just a carpenter of the human body, measuring parts and fixing them, though that would be all I needed and enough to ask for. But I got to see this person whose job put him up against the meadow and mountain of the body, astride the glacier of the body, you might say which is the same, I suppose, as any other vantage point on nature that we can have, having the ability somehow to make us go quiet, as he did, describing the optical nerve in a hushed tone like he was talking in church. Nature humbles us it right-sizes us, doesn't it? One way or the other, whether we want to be right-sized or not, 
nature and body, it will right-size us, put us in perspective. I think the goal, though, is to listen and to answer the call, that insistent call for connection and relationship rather than fight it, right? To fall into it. Train our eye for it, or our heart, or our nose, or our ears, or our hands. The way Wendell Berry did, right? Falling in love, as we all probably, or many of us do know the story, with his now famous farm in Kentucky, Barry and his wife bought the farm on the land that the Barry family had known for generations in Port Royal in Kentucky, purchased that farm as a place that he would fix up and they would get away to on the weekends. But, but eventually, Wendell Berry found life on the farm so compelling that he would give up his teaching position at the University of Kentucky to live and farm the land full-time, doing so still by horse or years with horse and old worn and repaired tools in the almost lost art he fears of what he calls husbandry. A great word, husbandry, conjures up to me marriage to a place for better or for worse. In a BBC radio interview in 2017, Barry, the famous poet and essayist and now farmer and certainly environmentalist, speaking from that farm, his home, said, quote, everything of value in this place is at stake and at risk, and that it was considered by most people as a kind of raw material that ought to be subjected to what they now call creative destruction for the sake, typically, of a better life in the future. But for Barry, like for our Native American and Indian siblings, land, the land he knows and is married to, is not something to be traded in or extracted from. It is a mountain he loves, he'll use that word, with intimate connection to its topsoil and its winds. He sees it the way my husband saw those flowers for 84 days straight, all the varieties of them on the streets and parks of San Francisco, and how we fall in love through that kind of knowing, don't we? The way my uncle, who is a logical scientist and businessman, fell in love and falls ever more in love with birds by their calls, recording them and cataloging them online so that others might fall in love too. The way love calls us into all these ways of care and witness. How when we let ourselves behold, hear, know something, we are drawn into what it means to participating in environmental salvation, right? Because you take care of the things you love, as Barry rightly says. Maybe also, he says, there is a real possibility that I consider all the time that you don't love something, that if you don't love something, you can't know it. 
So this power to behold, to hear, to see, to touch, to know a place, a piece of the earth, to take away the distractions when we need to, to engage in the ritual practices, to go to the places that allow us to be right-sized, to fall in love anywhere. It's crucial. And it raises the question for me, what places do I know, really know? What places do you know? If our salvation depends on that kind of knowing and falling in love, falling into the embrace of the insistently wild pursuit of connection that nature calls out to us with, then we have to find it if we don't already know it. There is a photograph in Truer's article in The Atlantic magazine this month. That one about the natural parks, the national parks, and the call to restore them to the native peoples whose lands, often sacred lands, they were. It's a photograph of a man in a suit who's sitting at a big desk, you know, with a blotter and a fountain pen with ink, and he's signing a document, a white man. And around him are all these other men in suits and ties too, I think mostly white, it's not always obvious, or easy to tell, photograph is old. I looked at the image quickly while reading the article, I figured I'd got the trope, it was a classic moment of some bill becoming law or some agreement being finalized, some official moment, but I'd missed something that I didn't realize until I read the caption at the bottom. George Gillette, it said, left. The chairman of the Fort Berthold Indian Tribal Count Business Council weeps as more than 150,000 acres of the Fort Berthold Reservation in North Dakota are signed away for the Garrison Dam and Reservoir Project. Looking again, there on the left side of the picture, like they indicated, in a pinstriped suit was Gillette. His glasses in his right hand, he holds against his chest. His left hand is across his eyes in this protective gesture and the side of his mouth, only slightly visible, is twisted in grief. There is this person, I thought, who knew a place, a whole expanse of it, enough to love it, surrounded by people who from their lack of expression in this moment knew nothing at all about that. Not even by compassionate extension Maybe ones who thought they were wise enough to see instead the sheer logical equation of land in a life that was much bigger than the earth. Never a better photo was taken to remind us of what we are all called to remember. To know, to be in awe, to come to know some corner of the world so intimately to have it make a claim on us 
have us fall in love, fall into the requirements of service and salvation of it, such that we would weep in such a way to see it sacrificed to anything but itself. That's our chance at salvation. So this Earth Day, I invite us all to stay in touch with the places we know and love and fall ever more in love with close beholding to the beauty around us, within us, to the sacred earth of which we are a part. Amen. benediction today is a responsive reading from the UN's Environmental Sabbath Service from Earth Day of 1990. The refrain which Sam will lead you in is, we join with the earth and with each other. To bring new life to the land, to restore the waters, to refresh the airs. We join with the earth and with each other to renew the forests, to care for the plants, to protect the creatures. We join with the earth and with each other. To celebrate the seas, to rejoice in the sunlight, to sing the song of the stars. We join with the earth and with each other. To recall our destiny, to renew our spirits, to reinvigorate our bodies. We join with the earth and with each other. 
to recreate the human community, to promote justice and peace, to remember our children. We join with the earth and with each other. We join together as many and diverse expressions of one loving mystery for the healing of the earth and the renewal of life. Go in peace. of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.